I was grateful for the quality presentation by the chorale on Monday and then also by that piano duet and what I've heard this morning. And it's exciting to see what God is doing here. I'm delighted today that one of our graduates from Cedarville College, Craig Miller, pastor of the Faith Community Church, could be with us. We had breakfast together this morning, and I praise God for what he's doing through his life and his ministry. I remember when Craig was a student at Cedarville. As I recall, he graduated with a 4.0. As I recall, he not only was a valedictorian of the class, I believe he received the President's Trophy for the outstanding uh, young man in the graduating class, and he's truly one of our esteemed graduates, and we're thankful for what God is doing through him on the West Coast. I also want to congratulate the young man who has an 18th birthday. Uh, I, I, I turned 18 when I was a freshman in college. There aren't many of us who go to college when we're 17. In fact, I can remember that when I had my 18th birthday, it was about three weeks after I started school. I started in January. In the middle of the college year. And the word got out that I was 18. I went to school in Tennessee and this big old boy from Alabama, he was a senior. He came into my room. He found out I had turned 18. I was sitting on the top bunk. That was my bunk. And he looked at me and he said, Kid, does your mother know where you are? <laughs> but my fondest memory is my first day of college. I've looked around this morning, I've walked around, I've been able to shake a few hands and talk to some of you, and one of the things that thrills my heart is to see that some of you young men and young ladies are seated together. In fact, it's quite obvious that some of you are attracted to one another. <laughs> there are some other young men who are seated in a row full of young men. And my guess is that those guys right there, raising their hands on the back row, need help. They've been sitting on that back row. There's another row all the way up there. No, You have to go down about five or six before you find a young lady. There's one. My guess is they've been doing that all year. Some of them have been doing it for four years. <laughs> now I want you guys to take notes. I realize that you may not be in to taking notes in every chapel, but for the next three minutes, you need this. I want you to listen closely. That, there, that, that's it. Get your notebooks out. Get your pens. Get ready. I was saved when I was a senior in high school in Cincinnati, Ohio. Incidentally, the Cincinnati Reds are 7-0, and for anyone who's interested. Where's the applause for the Cincinnati Reds, huh? 7-0. and Listen, you, you mean there are Dodgers fans in this part of the United States?
Do you Dodgers fans remember how much you love Pete Rose? Huh? I was saved as a senior in high school. Immediately, God put his hand upon me, sent me off to a place called Tennessee Temple in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I walked on that campus. They had 800 students, just about the size of your student body. I was scared. It was the middle of the academic year. It was January. I had not started in September. I was showing up in January. I only knew two people on that campus. And I walk up in front of the dining hall, my first hour on campus, and this great big guy came running up to me and said, My name's Vernon Blackburn. I believe you know yours. I knew I had a strange one on my hands. And the next thing he said is, I want you to be my deaf and dumb brother. I said, what? (laughs) Now, our friends who cannot speak and who cannot hear are very intelligent. But often that is said, and that's what was said to me. He said, I want you to be my deaf and dumb brother. I said, what are you talking about? He said, look, you're not known around here. And I want to take you all over this campus and introduce you as my brother from Pensacola, Florida. And you can't speak and you can't hear. I said, Vernon, I couldn't do that. He said, sure you can. Just watch. And so he called a bunch of kids over. He said, this is my brother from Pensacola, Florida. He can't speak and he can't hear. And I didn't know what to do, so I just went. (laughs) Hey, I mean, those southern kids were so gullible, they bought this. I mean, they called their friends. They said, come on over here. We want you to meet this guy. First kid who's ever come to this school. Can't speak and can't hear. And some of them would talk real loud, Vernon said. He can't hear a thing you're saying. It's really funny. Some of them would enunciate very distinctly so that I might read their lips and Vernon say, he's not even a very good lip reader. <laughs> and they're trying to figure out how I'm going to make it through college. And, and this thing goes all day. And you know what was really a riot is I'd stand on the street corner and a bunch of kids would come by me and I was the, you know, the center of attraction at the start of this new semester. And they'd start talking about me. Did you ever have a bunch of college kids talking about you and they don't think you can hear them, but you can? <laughs> I went to the basketball game that night, and I mean, you know, I was up there in the bleachers, and they were shouting and cheering. I couldn't shout. I couldn't cheer. I just had to sit there. I didn't know how long this thing was supposed to go on. And a whole game, I'm just there taking it in. And after the game was over, I'm standing by myself, and I look, and across that gymnasium floor came the prettiest teenage girl I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, she was one of those southern bells. She was 16 years old. And she'd heard about this fellow who couldn't speak and couldn't hear. She came running up to me and her eyes were just a flashing and she was so excited and she looked at me and she went. <laughs> she worked with the deaf people in the Highland Park Baptist Church. She translated Dr. Lee Robertson's messages on her hands. And I started getting red right here and all the way up. It took her about five seconds to find out I wasn't deaf. We got married three and a half years later. She still says I'm the dumbest fella she ever met. I I want you guys to try it. Life. Is 10% what happens to us, 90% how we respond to what happens. 
Chuck Swindoll's right. And we're looking at the word that guarantees success in the 90s. That word is our attitude. The key to your success at Master's College is your attitude. The key to my success at Cedarville College is my attitude. Not how I handle the good times, but how I handle the tough times. The key to success, if you marry and have a family in that home, is attitude. The key to success on the job, in the workplace, is attitude. And the key to success in those local churches, when you go out and take your position either in the pew or in the pulpit, is attitude. And we saw that in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, the key to the apostles' Godly attitude is that he had a focus on Christ, a focus on the gospel, Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, that we must never get over our salvation. We must never take it for granted and that somehow whatever we do and whatever happens, it all must come down to we look at Jesus Christ that He died on a cross for us, the Son of God was placed in a tomb, arose from the dead, and that the Gospel, Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done, that focus produces a godly attitude. And amazingly enough, the Apostle Paul said in verse 12, I would you should understand, brethren, that everything that happens in my life is for the furtherance of the Gospel. We go through our share of tough times at Cedarville just like you do as a college family. We have had a number of our students to die in recent years. On the last day of final exams, winter quarter, I suppose it was like December the 13th, I can still remember going into the dining hall and we have three days of exams. It was the last day and we had a snowstorm that morning. It was about four inches of snow on the ground and I almost felt like going into the dining hall and screaming to all those kids who hadn't left, stay another day, don't drive in this stuff. But Christy Walburn got in the car with the young man who was driving her to the northern part of the state, and they're going down Interstate 70, and to this day no one knows exactly what happened, except the guy in front of them went into a fishtail on a bridge, and so naturally what the young man would do, he hit his brake, and when he did, it just lost control. The car went all the way over the median, and they were hit by a semi. And Christie was hanging between life and death. She was to go home to be with the Lord in about 30 days. She was 19 years old and a sophomore.
Approximately two weeks later, on December the 22nd, I'm in my bedroom a mile and a half from the college and something shook the house. The kids are all gone. It's winter break, Christmas break. And I looked at my wife and I said, do you think something malfunctioned in the furnace? And I got up and started to move around the house and within, I'd say, three minutes, the phone was ringing and it was my secretary. And she said, the water tower has exploded. And we believe that Mark Brown was in the explosion. Mark Brown graduated from Cedarville. His wife, Judy, graduated from Cedarville, 31 years old, four children, two four, six, and eight. I rush to the college, piece things together, know that Mark is hanging between life and death as a propane heater in our water tower holding 100,000 gallons of water had exploded as Mark walked into the water tower to check things that morning as director of safety and security. And by the time I get to the hospital, the helicopter's already there to take him to the Greater Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton. I just broke down. I uncontrollably wept. I loved him. I still do. I asked the Surgeon, I said, do you think he's going to make it? I said, there really isn't any chance, is there? She said, oh, yeah, there's, there's a chance. He hung on for three weeks. Never forget Judy telling me, she gave such a great testimony. I, I had her come two days before he died. I had her come to chapel and give her testimony. Been married for ten years. The next day was our board of trustee meetings and I came in and have her give her, had her give her testimony. Mark died the next day. We had a funeral service for Mark and 2,000 people came. Not just our students. We live in a small village of 2,800 people. And people from all over the village came because of the testimony Mark had had to them. If they had a flat tire, Mark was out there changing the tire battery was dead, Mark was running out all hours of the night trying to start their cars. They love Mark too. Firemen came from all over the county. Policemen came from all over the county. The corral sing, sang, the quartet sang. I mean, somebody said to me, well, that was the funeral for a dignitary. I said, we're just all servants of God in this business. I don't know young people, men and women, when I've ever had anything move me personally. And I've had a lot of the students I love to go to heaven since I've been president. But I've never had anything happen quite like this. You say, did you understand it? No. I couldn't wait for our students to get back from the break so they could pray for Christy. And they could pray for Mark 
And I thought, sure, with the power of all of us as a college family praying, they'd both make it and they both died. You said, do you understand that? No. I didn't then, and I don't now. I don't guess I ever will till I get to heaven. But I have confidence that God is God, and there's an answer to it, though I don't understand it now. But I did begin to understand it to a degree, at least Philippians 1.12, when about 30 days ago we had our day of prayer and we have during our day of prayer a time of testimony and sharing and Don Rickard, our vice president for student services, lines up young people to give their testimonies and faculty and staff. And all of a sudden one guy walked to the microphone. He's in his uniform and he said, my name's Scott Baldwin. I'm 32 years old. I'm the chief of the fire department in the village of Cedarville. And I want you to know that two weeks ago, I was born again. I repented of my sin and received Jesus Christ by faith. And Jesus Christ has transformed my life. And I want you to know that I got saved as a result of the accident at the water tower and Mark Brown going to heaven. Because Mark Brown had witnessed to me and the testimony that Mark Brown had had in my life and all that transpired that impressed upon me the brevity of life influenced me to turn to the Savior. And I understood Philippians 1.12. I want you to understand, brethren, that everything that happens in my life is for the furtherance of the gospel. Judy, how do you keep from being bitter toward the college, toward God, toward Christianity when your husband suddenly is gone and you're left with four kids? I want you to understand, brethren, that everything that happens in my life is for the furtherance of the gospel. That life is 10% what happens to us, 90% how we respond to what happens when the focus is on Christ. Number two, we saw that you get a godly attitude in chapter two when you have the focus on Christians and not on self. We're self-centered. We're self-seeking. But if suddenly we have a servant spirit and a servant's heart, and instead of going around campus trying to defend our own turf and our own egos, looking to see how we can help others, how we can serve others. Hey, I want to tell you something. Young men and young women, it's the end of a college year and you are buried with the responsibilities of papers and exams and all the academic challenges, and one of the easiest things to do is to spend the last three weeks of the college year thinking about yourself. And the best thing that can happen on this campus and on Cedarville's campus is if all of a sudden we start thinking about other people and pouring our lives into other people and caring about one another and loving one another and praying for one another and forgiving one another and being long-suffering with one another and forbearing with one another, all of a sudden we have that kind of a godly attitude that the apostles so model. How do you get it? Focus on Christ. 
focused on Christians. And then in chapter 3, today let's look at how he had his focus on heaven. Now study the entire chapter and you find Paul's testimony and you find Paul's goals and you just see how he lived. And this godly life now boils down to verses 20 and 21. It kind of capsulizes the entire chapter. Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Wow. You ever sing the song in Southern California like we sing in the southern part of the United States down there in Tennessee? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Our problem today in this materialistic age is that we are temporal-centered instead of eternal-centered. We live for the things of this earth instead of the things of heaven. Now, it's not wrong to have temporal things. Nice clothes, nice home, nice car. The question is our focus. The question comes down to priorities. And if all we're thinking about is the temporal, the grades, getting the job, getting the promotion, long-term goals, look at all that in contrast to the Apostle Paul's goals. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's that eternal focus when we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. See the difference? Can you imagine how that changes our attitude? Listen carefully. One of the things I teach, I hammer at Cedarville College is that for too long in the church we have taught a dichotomy that somehow those who stand behind pulpits are godly and those who sit in the pew as lay people are second-class citizens. I have never believed that. That is contrary to the teaching of the Word of God. The early church was primarily a lay movement. We will never reach a world for Christ from the pulpit. We will only reach a world for Christ from the pew. And it's only when the entire body of Christ realizes whether God wants me to be a housewife, in business, in law, in education, to stand behind a pulpit, whatever it is, I am in the will of God and I want to be the best Christian I can be and servant of God wherever He places me. It is then we're going to accomplish the Great Commission. But having said that, If you are so locked in to professional goals that there's no way that you're going to even pray about the will of God and foreign missions, 
you'll never have a godly attitude. Maybe God wants you to be used in business in Germany and to work with the missionary as a tent maker to carry out the Great Commission. Have you ever thought about that? Or your computer skills. Your foreign language skills. The point is that we need to put it all on the altar and say, Lord, I am alive for you. And I want to have an eternal focus. My focus is not upon those fleeting 20, 30, 40, 60, 80 years upon this earth, but in eternity. I have a ministry with professional athletes and have for 15 years. I've spoken to the Cincinnati Reds uh, starting back in 1975. In fact, I can remember when I was out here speaking at LABC and speaking in one of the churches that Sparky Anderson said, Paul, why don't you come over to my house? He lives in Thousand Oaks. And I went over to Sparky and I think we went out to watch his son play baseball. And Sparky's been a good friend for many years. And I was with the Reds when they won the 75 World Series and the 76 World Series. And so we've been involved with the Reds and all the National League baseball teams. And I'll be in Atlanta this year and uh, be in Cincinnati and doing chapels. And I do the same with the professional football teams, with the Cincinnati Bengals. When the Dolphins came in, they called me and asked if I would do their chapel and the Houston Oilers. And so when they come into Cincinnati, if I have time and an open Sunday, I go down and minister. I don't often bring the professional athletes to chapel. You say, why? Because I want to make sure that they truly know the Lord and they're growing in grace. I think we have to be careful that we don't violate the biblical principle of using a novice just because it happens to be an athlete. I do bring Anthony Munoz to chapel because Anthony Munoz is a godly football player. But one day I said, uh, it was the last chapel of the college year, and you know how important that is, and I preach on that particular service, and so it was my last Monday chapel, and I said, before I preach, I want you to meet someone. Frank Pastore, the Cincinnati Reds, would you please come to the platform? Man, the kids, you know, hey, so Frank starts, you know, coming to the platform, and, oh, he's cool. I mean, he's good looking, and he's got on his uh, designer gym shoes, and he has on his designer jeans, and, you know, he gets up there, and, uh, and, and I said, okay, uh, Frank, tell our college family what happened 12 months ago. Now, I step back, and this is how I usually do this. I ask them a question, they give a brief answer. I ask another question, they give a brief answer. And that's how we cover, you know, a few minutes of testimony. I step back. Fifteen minutes later, I have to step up and stop Frank and say, I, I need to preach this morning. This is what Frank said. Very articulate. So 12 months ago, I'm standing on the mound at Riverfront. I'm 5-2 and two with a two-point ERA. And Steve Sachs of the Los Angeles Dodgers hits a line drive off my arm. Incidentally, I was speaking to the Dodgers last year and telling the story. And Steve Sachs did not even know what had happened. He didn't know this whole story. And he was just thrilled when he heard it. I guess it was two years ago, uh, perhaps. To see, I think Steve was traded to the New York Yankees, maybe it was. Or he signed as a free agent. So I'm uh, listening to Frank. He said, I'm 5-2 and two with a two-point ERA, and Steve Sachs hits that line drive off of my arm. He said, I'm not to pitch but five innings the rest of the year. 
Now you have to understand I'm an agnostic. I'm an evolutionist. He said, I have no interest in the things of God. I refuse to go to chapel. And I decided, since I had so much time on my hands, I'm going to go on a search for God. I don't believe that there's a God, but the, I've never really gone on a search for Him. So I at least need to find out. And since I'm an evolutionist, I thought the best place to start is to disprove God when it comes to creationism. But I'd never read anything on creationism. So I got a book called The Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris. Read it and became a creationist. Now I say to myself, now wait a minute, if God has revealed Himself in creation, does He have another revelation of Himself? The Christians claim that the Bible is the verbally inspired Word of God. Is it possible that it is? So he said, I started reading books about the Bible and concluded that the Bible was everything God said it was and that the Christians said it was and I believe the Bible. Now, the next question is, if God has revealed himself in creation and God has revealed himself in the Bible, is it possible he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, as the Christians claim? Now, you have to understand, there are many people who give testimonies like this, and you begin to find out that this guy is very bright, and he was on a full academic scholarship to Stanford. Not athletic. Academic. He said, now I take the Gospel of John and I start reading it from cover to cover, from the first chapter to the last chapter, concluded Jesus Christ was everything He claimed to be, got down on my knees, repented of my sin, and received Jesus Christ by faith as my Savior. He said, it took me six weeks to get from the start of the search to Jesus Christ. Since that day, last year, I've read my Bible all the way through and 3,000 pages of Christian literature. Now, this has taken 15 minutes, and I'm still standing here, feeling a little bit out of place, and I reached in my pocket and pulled out a slip of paper, and I wrote something on it, and I tapped Frank on the shoulder, and I gave it to him, and he started to laugh, and then he read it to the college family. It said, Frank, it's time for a relief pitcher. Frank... Walked down, I preached, that was Monday. Friday, Frank Pastore was on the mound at Riverfront and a bone chip moved in his elbow. He didn't know it then, but he was never to pitch another inning for the Cincinnati. But I called him. And I said, Frank, how you doing? He said, I'm in a lot of pain. I said, that's not the question. The question is, how are you doing spiritually? He said, why do you ask that question? I said, because Frank, I know you fellas. You guys think if I'm a Christian, then I'm going to win 20 games. If I'm a Christian, I'm going to hit 30 home runs. If I'm a Christian, everything is going to go right. It's going to be great if I'm a Christian. Hey, don't laugh at the athletes. Begin to evaluate how you approach the Christian life. If I have my devotions every day, if I go to church, if I endeavor to obey the Word of God, then I'm going to pass that exam. I'm going to graduate. She's going to marry me when I ask her. 
Things are always, you know, we're going to live life happily ever after. No, listen, you can do everything you're supposed to do and you can have strings snapping all over your life and the bottom falling out of your life as a Christian. I said, Frank, how are you doing spiritually? He said, let me ask you a question. I said, what's that? He said, is God sovereign or isn't it? Is God God or isn't it? If God is God, then what difference does it make if I never pitch another inning? All I want to do is please God. He said, do you have any seminaries you want to recommend me to? Frank Pastore just left California and has gone to Cincinnati. The Athletes in Action ministry is now centered in the city of Cincinnati under the direction of Wendell Deo. And Wendell told me that Frank is coming back to Cincinnati to head up the new professional ministry through AIAA to baseball players. What's the difference in how he handled it and the way some professional athletes handle life surprises? He had an eternal focus. It's a difference for you and for me too. And then the Apostle Paul had a godly attitude because of his positive focus, chapter 4. Men and women, I would encourage you to memorize verse 8. If you've never memorized it, do it. He's bringing the epistle to a close. He's talked about a lot of outstanding things happening in his life. He's expressed concern about problems in the church. And he says, finally, brethren, Whatsoever things are true and whatsoever things are honest and whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, if you look up from your Bible, what you think is what you are. If you are a negative thinker, if I am a negative thinker, then we become critical people. We become judgmental people. And we begin to manifest all the characteristics of an ungodly attitude. And we live in a negative society. The news, the national news, the, the local news, the media, it's all geared to the negative. Whether it's our governmental leaders, whether it's what's going on in the world, they look for the negative. That's what makes news. And that begins to influence us in our Christian homes. Begins to influence us in our Christian colleges. And so you begin to get a negative mindset. Instead of looking for the positive, you start looking for the negative. Uh, please don't get the apostle wrong. Did Paul refuse to deal with sin? No. No, he, he didn't have some kind of realistic, optimi unrealistic optimism where he didn't deal with sin, where he didn't point out, practice confrontation. No, if the Apostle Paul had a problem in a church, he dealt with that problem. But let me give you this challenge. Study the epistles in the light of the problems in the churches and notice how Paul started the epistle. He always started it in the positive. 
He always looked for something that he could praise, that he could reinforce, where he could give them some encouragement. Hey, I, I'd like to tell you that our student body, we don't have any problems. We have problems with our students. We have problems with our faculty. You know, they had a real problem this year. They gave another contract for the 13th time to a president who's a sinner, who's depraved. We all have problems. You say, do you ever deal with those problems in your chapel? You bet your life. I get up and I deal with those problems. But I do that in a context of encouragement and reinforcement and love that takes place all the time. And out of that, we deal with the problems. And that's the way we need to do it in our families. And that's the way we need to do it in our churches. And that's the way the Apostle Paul did it. But young people, if you're just going around looking for problems at Masters, I'll guarantee you, you can find them. And some of you sit around in your dormitories and all you do is criticize and grouse. You know what really gets me? The kids, they write me notes every once in a while, who criticize the other students. Criticize the other students for not being spiritual. In fact, I got a note that I just answered on this trip from one of our very fine students who called some of his brothers and sisters in Christ apostate believers. Now, I am not sure as to how he reached his conclusion, but I let him know in my answer to his letter that I did not appreciate his spirit at all. Some of you kids who think you're so spiritual... Go around criticizing other kids. I want to check the box score ten years from now. Because you'll be amazed how many mediocre kids on this campus, fringe kids, not kids living out there and partying and sex and alcohol like some are, no doubt. But I'm just talking about kids who don't seemingly have it all together and are still growing up in the things of the Lord and other things will be doing something for God and some of the kids who are supposed to be spiritual won't be a mountain to anything for God. Hey, don't spend all your time trying to find out what's wrong with the rest of the student body. Just work on your own life. I don't know about you, but I have a tough enough time working on Paul Dixon without trying to straighten everybody else out. Don't spend the last three weeks of this, this year with all the stress and the pressures of the academics on the negative. Man, get excited about what God has done this year and about all of your seniors and what they're going to be doing and make this the greatest conclusion to a college year that Masters has ever experienced. You want a godly attitude? Focus on the positive. It was April. I was driving back from a Bible conference in Cincinnati. Every night I was going back and forth so I could be there in chapel in the mornings. Now, I don't know, I just felt so uneasy. 
Something was wrong. And I don't know why, I, I don't know if I've ever had this before, I sensed when I would drive up into my driveway there'd be cars all around the house because something had happened. And when they weren't there, I was relieved. I pulled my car in the garage, walked in, Pat was watching the news and she's so special and Pat, we greeted one another and I went back into the bedroom to put my pajamas on. She came running, screaming, back into the bedroom. She said, Paul, Paul, there's, there's been an accident out on Highway 68 and, and I just feel like there are kids. I just know there are kids. That moment, the phone started ringing. I picked up the telephone. It was the emergency room at Green Memorial Hospital. And they said, is this Paul Dixon? I said, yes. They said, there's a young man, Jeff Bergendine. And he's been in a serious automobile accident along with some more of your students. And Jeff and the kids are crying for you. I said, we'll be there. When we got there, highway patrol was there. We started to piece it all together. Five kids, after Wednesday night prayer meeting, got in a car to do a Young's run. It's a dairy out in the country, I don't know, five miles from the college. You know, you have your own culture. You know which, where you like to go at Masters. Our kids, they like to go to Young's for ice cream and donuts and so forth. And they're on their way out to Young's. And a drunk on the wrong side of the road hit them head on. I was in four hospitals that night. In Springfield, Xenia, Dayton. Gordon Ooms was our campus cartoonist, one of the neatest guys you'd ever want to meet from Illinois. On our newspaper staff, a sophomore, he died that night. Debbie Henry was in the back seat, one of our outstanding soloists in gospel groups. She's a senior. She's getting ready to graduate in six weeks. She went to heaven instantaneously. She was killed instantly. Tim was driving the car. He was a sophomore. Minor injuries. Next to him, his girlfriend, Sharon. A lot of serious injuries. She was in the hospital for three weeks. He still walks with a limp. She works for Moody Bible Institute. Tim and Sharon are married. They both work at Moody. Over here was Jeff the editor of the yearbook, a sophomore. When the accident happened, he went forward and every bone in his face was broken. And he was hanging between life and death for a month. When he got out, I, I said, Jeff, before you go back to Illinois, would you please come to the chapel and share with the college family what God's been doing for you? He said, sure. And so Jeff came and, of course... His face looked like a basketball. And everything was wired together with two metal buttons right here in his forehead. And you'd have to know Jeff, as only a college student could do. Jeff looked out at everyone and said, first, I hadn't said anything. He just looks out. He's been through all this trauma. We've been through it with him. He says, some of you kids think you're preppy? He said, I'm the preppiest kid at Cedarville College. I'm the only one with a button-down forehead. 
He thanked us for our prayers and support. And then he said on Thursday night before I got out of the hospital, my nurse came in to me and I said, before I leave, I want to ask you one question. If you die, do you know that you're going to heaven? And she looked at me and said, Jeff, no, I don't. I've been so impressed with all these kids from Cedarville coming and going out of your room and you and everything else. I want you to know that I want you to tell me how I can know the same Jesus Christ that you know. And he said, I led my nurse to Jesus Christ on Thursday night before I got out of the hospital. And then he said this. He said, all the myelograms and all the spinal taps and all the physical pain and the emotional trauma and the spiritual questions, if the only reason God had me in that hospital was to lead my nurse to Christ, it was worth it. You say, does he still have physical infirmity? Yes. Does he still have psychological trauma? Sure, you don't go through something like that without emotional pain. Do you have all the questions answered about why? No, never will. But somehow he has a godly attitude because he was able to focus on the positive. A focus on Christ, a focus on Christians, a focus on heaven, and a focus on the positive will help us to be more and more like the Apostle Paul and more and more like our Lord. Would you sing with me?